Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podsite, everyone. This is Carlo. And uh, today I'm going to be joined by Maddie Lewis. Hi, Maddie. Hi. Uh, and we're going to be talking about um, Angela Carter, two Angela Carter short stories that are based on sort of retellings of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, one being The Courtship of Mr. Lion and The Tiger's Bride. And so, um, I guess, uh, my question right off the bat, Maddie is, um, so I, I guess you like, I, I've heard you mention that you like fairy tales, um, and especially fairy tale retellings. Uh, and I believe. Oh, see, that's a lie. I may have given you a misperception that I like fairy tale retellings. I actually usually hate them because I like Ah. the original fairy tales and I find they're rarely improved upon in the retelling. However, <laughs> I really, really like Angela Carter's fairy tale retellings. There you go. See, that was the part I, I might have been, I might have sanded off in my memory. It's you actually only like Angela Carter <laughs> fairy tale retellings. I mean, I'm sure if I really racked my brain, I could think of some others that I like. But it's mostly Angela Carter. I've not really found a whole lot of other fairy tale retellings that I thought um, really like hit the spot for me or, or quite captured what I actually like about fairy tales in the first place. Right. So I mean, um, and I, I'll, I'll be I'll be really honest with you because I think the only other Angela Carter. Um, story that I've read prior to this had been uh, The Snow Pavilion, uh, which actually I read it in the, uh, it was the big book of weird or whatever. Um, the one that the Vandermeers edited. And mm-hmm. uh, that, it's weird because it, it definitely, well, obviously it's weird. It's in the title. Um, but uh, the, the the odd thing about that story is that it is a, it's not exactly horror, although it feels very tense and has sort of like horror vibes to it. But it also feels like, you know, the the hapless dude at the center that becomes the character in the story is sort of just has stumbled on like this weird fairy tale that he doesn't know what the rules are of it. So I was, I guess I had filed that away somewhere. And when you mentioned Angela Carr, I was like, you know, I read that story and I, I'm not sure how I felt about it. And you, you were the one that told me that her fairy tale retellings are really great. And I was like, oh, she's got fairy tale retellings. Let me, I should check those out. And immediately that left my brain uh, and, and only came back a few days ago when, when we were talking about this. So um, I guess my question would be, what exactly, I mean, why did you choose specifically these two stories out of uh, her collection? 
Um, well, for one, there were she has like a couple of kind of recurring things that go. She has several werewolf or Red Riding Hood inspired stories in there. And I could have talked about that. The Company of Wolves is actually probably the most famous story from the collection mm-hmm. since it um, it had the Neil movie. Jordan movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I've actually With- yet to see to my great shame because I know I'll love it when I do. Oh. But uh, I, I, so I thought, OK, yeah. well, I could do that one. <laughs> but then it had these two just sitting right next to each other. And uh, the Tiger's Bride is actually not just my favorite story in the collection, but it's probably my favorite short story, like period of all time. Mm-hmm. Um But the reason I kind of wanted to do these two together is because I feel like they're like just this incredible bait and switch, uh, the way they're situated, because they're right next to each other in the collection. You start with Courtship of Mr. Lion and the very next story is The Tiger's Bride. And there's such a bait and switch that I think they're kind of interesting to talk about together, Um, especially because The Courtship of Mr. Lion is so, it's a very nice story, like the rest of this collection, almost all of the other stories other than this one are pretty dark and gruesome and very Brothers Grimm. This is a nice story. And then you go into The Tiger's Bride and it is not like that at all. So I think the contrast there is interesting. Um, I also think, and I'm sorry to have done you like this, Carlo, um, it's my second to least favorite story in the collection. I think they're all good. Don't get me wrong. Like, mm-hmm. you know, my your second to least favorite Angela Carter story is like your second to least favorite kind of chocolate. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you because once and I've uh, it's it's a weird thing because I I, I guess um, I'm thinking of that uh, that sort of uh, line from. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Omelas story where, you know, it's like, you know, oh, uh, what is, I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it because I can't possibly off the top of the dome just, you know, say stuff like Ursula K. Le Guin writes, but uh, something along the lines of, you know, uh, only, uh, only sort of like negative things are, are seem interesting to people, uh, you know, they don't really enjoy joyful things and whatnot, uh, which is sort of tediously quoted without the context of where it's situated in a story. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I, I enjoyed uh, The Courtship of Mr. Lion, but I have to agree that The Tiger's Bride, I think it just scratches that sort of really sort of um, – I'd, I'd probably say it's like this very raw, almost primal sort of feeling that starts. Uh, I, I'm not sure it starts off immediately, but it's almost immediate in the story uh, versus like the courtship of Mr. Lion. Like even the titles sound wildly uh, disparate, you know, the courtship of Mr. Lion. And you're like, yeah, oh, that's it's, cute. it's so nice. It's charming. Yeah, I think it's. Like, it's- I think it's a really good one to have people read them one, two, just because you get the kind of versatility that Carter has. Because, well, I don't particularly like The Courtship of Mr. Lion as much as I like The Tiger's Bride. Though, to be fair, I don't like much of anything as much as I like The Tiger's Bride. It's a really well-written story. It's good. It's charming. It just happens to also be something that is 
um, appropriate enough that you could read it at a Christian ladies book club and no one would bat an eyelash about it. Unless you followed it with a tiger's bride and then there would be some some uh, gnashing of teeth and clutching of pearls, probably. Uh, many, many uh, quick uh, fan fanning of, of the of the face because they got the vapors. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it, it really and, and it's not like I don't feel like it's weird because I don't feel like the tiger's bride is necessarily a uh, it's a sensual story. I don't feel like it's like erotica or like pornographic or even obscene. It's just simply very primal, very it's raw. really hot, but it's not really explicit. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know if you have any particular parts that you'd like to read. I mean, I I just would probably read the beginning of one of them and the beginning of another and see. Although Tiger's Bride, really, you you could probably pick because you, you probably know that that one better than I do. Oh, I mean, um, if, if you got to do the Tiger's Bride, the very end is the part that you've got to really, like, dig into. Because that's the, like, it's all good, but the very end is the absolute, like, sucker punch of that story. It hits, it just smacks every time. It's really good. Yeah. Um, but probably that shouldn't be something we talk about just yet. Yeah, we could we could probably let, let folks uh, maybe read while we're talking. <laughs> No, don't try to do that, folks. It's it's madness. Hard um, to focus. Yeah, very difficult. Um, but y- you could definitely pause this because eventually we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the different parts of the stories and whatnot and uh, probably get into some spoilers. Um, I don't feel that you can really spoil, really, The Tiger's Bride because it's such a vibe. Um, oh, yeah, it's it's definitely a mood piece. If you you either vibe with it or you don't, I don't really think it's not that the plot doesn't matter because the plot definitely matters, but the surprise of it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I mean, um, it's funny. Uh, I was mentioning the Snow Pavilion and I for a second had like a moment of deja vu reading the beginning of The Courtship of Mr. Lion because it's sort of starts the same way <laughs> which i mean uh, i'd imagine like what uh, you know perhaps early to mid-century you know mid-20th century uh you get stuck in the snow somewhere uh, far from home it's probably not a good time for you uh no so um let me see i mean here. it never is but uh but worse with less reliable roads less reliable cars Maybe more spacing out between gas stations. Yep. The petrol stations, at least in the courts of a Mr. Lion, which uh, it takes place. You know, it's also very quaint and safe because it takes place in, in England itself, you know, in uh, in the outskirts of London, no, no less. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, let me see here. So. I think I could probably read part of a page here. And this is uh, Beauty's dad has gotten stuck. His car's gotten stuck, as we were mentioning. And he's set off down the snowfield lane to look for help. 
Behind wrought iron gates, a short, snowy drive performed a reticent flourish before a miniature, perfect Palladian house that seemed to hide itself shyly behind snow-laden skirts of an antique cypress. It was almost night. That house, with its sweet, retiring, melancholy grace, would have seemed deserted but for a light that flickered in an upstairs window, so vague it might have been the reflection of a star, if any stars could have penetrated that the snow that whirled yet more thickly. Chilled through, he pressed the latch of the gate and saw with a pang how on the withered ghost of a tangle of thorns there clung still the faded rag of a white rose. The gate clanged loudly shut behind him. Too loudly. For an instant, that reverberating clang seemed final, emphatic, ominous as if the gate, now closed, barred all within it from the world outside the walled, wintry garden. And from a distance, though from what distance he could not tell, he heard the most singular sound in the world, a great roaring, as if a beast of prey. I'll leave it there, because, I mean, that in and of itself is very evocative, and you can just, it you know, like, it really spells out that even though this is an English manor that uh, the old dude is sort of trespassing upon, uh, it, it has all these weird uh, descriptions that evoke, like, a castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh, and just to speak about the descriptions... Uh, one of the things that I really like about Angela Carter's prose style is that whole like, oh yeah, like don't use adverbs or adjectives unless you really have to thing. She's just like, nah, nah, <laughs> fuck it. There's actually this, um, oh, there's this, I don't know if it was from an interview with her or what before she passed away where uh, she was talking about how it's like, oh yeah, people say... Um, you know, I have this overblown purple prose style. So what? Fuck them. Something to that extent. And that's like <laughs> the energy that I aspire to. I love her writing. She just goes all all out with it. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel, um, I, I, I'd say almost Baroque the way she's, she's writing. It's just like, oh, yeah, is that enough? No, no, that's not enough. That's not that enough description. <laughs> I'm gonna I, I believe this- our, our mutual friend Raquel on Right Good described it as a fainting couch <laughs> prose <laughs> at one point, which on one hand, yeah, actually, no, there's no, there's just, there's just the one hand. She's not wrong. It's just that I like it. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, the thing is, I feel like she um, really does, is able to pull it off with style. Uh, whereas, you know, someone more contemporary, and I don't want to cast aspersions here because, you know, this, this used to be like a big hero of mine. Uh, the goth queen herself, Anne Rice has sort of that (laughs) style. And, Mm -hmm. uh, in latter years, she just let it get away from her. Uh, she, this feels like it's very much under control. This, you bringing that up has made me, like, very upset that it was Anne Rice who have written uh, Claiming of Sleeping Beauty and not Angela Carter, because I feel like Angela Carter would have done it so much better. I mean, if the tiger's bright is any indication, it would have been hot. Instead of just It would have been good. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, 
I, I love any chance I get to rag on claiming of Sleeping Beauty, I'm going to take. <laughs> it's just... It's yeah, a bad I, I, book. I remember I picked it up once because I was like trying to go, you know, the, the the type of thing that you go th- that that phase that you go through where, you know, you, you discover a new author and you've got to like sort of burn through everything that you can get your hands on about them. And I remember like I, I'd written I'd read, you know, all the, the, the vampire stuff up until that point. Um, and then I picked up like I oh, she wrote something about Sleeping Beauty. I picked it up in the bookstore, read like the first two pages. I was like, eh, not for me. <laughs> it, it, it just seemed like, nah, I'm okay. It's fine. Yeah, I my experience with it was, so I didn't really know. I, this is the only Anne Rice I've ever read. It did not leave a good impression. Um, <laughs> my experience was, I saw it at the bookstore. It was like half price books. So it was like, I don't know, like three bucks or whatever. I was like, oh, it's it's an erotic retelling of Sleeping Beauty. That's theoretically something I'm into. Um, so what I expected was like, you know, like a spicy romance novel with like a little bit of S&M thrown in, maybe maybe a little more extreme than you'd get in like a Fifty Shades, but certainly not the like kind of Desaad light that it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, that wasn't so much my problem is that they, I don't care about, like the, the characters are very wooden and boring. And then also it really abandons the Sleeping Beauty conceit in like the first 10 pages. And I'm like, well, why even put that in there in the first place? It's the first of four books. And as far as I can tell, only the first 10 pages have anything to do with Sleeping Beauty. So I was a little let down by that too. Well, <laughs> well, I also I mean, don't know how guess, you could make four books out of the premise presented in the first, but you yeah, do you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, I, let's face it. At one point, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Rice could just, like, hand in anything. Stuff she scrawled on, the, on a napkin at a diner and it would get published because that was it. She's Anne Rice. <laughs> she's, she's Anne Rice. Um. <laughs> I'm still I'm still laughing thinking about like her almost <laughs> crushing fandom and telling the fanficers to go <laughs> fuck themselves. That's hilarious. <laughs> Just incredible posters blood. Oh yeah. Um if anyone is wondering what we're talking about, uh it's covered in much more depth than we can probably do it justice here uh uh in in the latest right good uh episode because that's the type of thing that Raquel loves. Um, in any case, uh, so yeah, so I guess the the th- I was noticing a couple of distinct things, and I'm not sure if it's like a you know like those folklore classification tables or, or lists or mm-hmm. whatever. And I was noticing that there's definitely like within the sleeping, the the sleeping beauty, the fuck, fuck. I got Anne Rice on the brain. (laughs) Um, Beauty and the Beast uh, stories. There's the sort of the, the, the castle the cursed castle that has uh, sort of non-human servants, which both these stories have. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And what is the other thing I'm thinking? Of? Well, obviously a beast, uh, but it, it's it's weird how she sort of deploys 
it differently in I in both of these. Uh, whereas, like the the courtship of Mister Lion is really sort of very again uh, going back to the to the vibe it has, which is very quaint. You know, the only like there's some invisible servants and like a Springer Spaniel that's like his valet or something. And yeah, the tiger's, it's his, his pet. Yeah, yeah, like but a, a he's beloved also, pet. Yeah, but he's also like you get the feeling he's of more you know smarter than the average Springer Spaniel dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah. she is very um, very much more attuned to humanity than the average dog, which says something considering a lot of dogs kind of are to begin with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you get one gets the impression that there's a little bit of the supernatural with this particular dog as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess, uh, what would, I mean, is, is that, do you think that that's like these specific things that just Angela Carter wanted to keep in mind or, or is this something that is in fact sort of classified in the, in the sort of like the retellings, does every retelling of Beauty and the Beast have to have like, uh, you know, sort of like a transformed servants, a cursed castle, and you know the beast is the most outward, you know, sort of expression of the the changeover. You know, I think there are two ways that I could answer that. The one is that I don't actually think you need to have anything other than a beastly character, well, physically at least, and a beautiful character. Um, So you could say something like Phantom of the Opera or Edward Scissorhands are both Beauty and the Beast kind of retellings if you want to look at just the the very core kind of, like the heart of the story, basically. Those are the things you absolutely have to have. However, for me personally, um, I do kind of look for, for those more... I don't want to say superficial, but um, the ancillary, those trappings, especially the cursed castle or the kind of forlorn or forsaken castle. It's not something that I think is always thematically necessary to make something feel like a Beauty and the Beast retelling. But I do kind of like it personally because it just has it just has an incredible vibe. It's really good. And yeah. I guess even with um. Phantom of the Opera, actually, I would argue, kind of captures that vibe with the uh, the setting of the opera house, how it's portrayed as, as very mysterious and um, kind of full of its own intrigues. That, I think, kind of, kind of fits the mold a little bit. Not as much Edward Scissorhands. Um, mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess that's where I said that I don't like any retellings of fairy tales is kind of a lie. If you want to really, really stretch fairy tale retelling to such a point that it also encompasses stuff like Phantom of the Opera or Edward Scissorhands. I don't like to because I'm of the opinion that um, when you start expanding definitions that much, they kind of lose, like the loss of specificity means the word is no longer useful. Kind of like whenever people call Dante or Milton fanfic. Like, that is an expansion so much of what fanfic is that if that's fanfic, practically everything is fanfic, so the term is meaningless. So, I don't know, that was a rambly way for me to say. I don't think those things are necessarily something you have to keep, 
but I do personally kind of like them. Yeah, of course, I it's mean, all up to execution. Like you could include all of the little stock Beauty and the Beast elements and have just like a dog shit story. That's totally possible. But, oh, but a good but, story that includes those elements, I like it. It's good to me. But you know, don't don't rag so much on the Disney uh, telling of Beauty and the Beast, uh, Maddie. <laughs> Actually, to their credit, to their credit. The Disney retelling of Beauty and the Beast is actually very good for a Disney movie. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I don't mm-hmm. hate it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a it was a, a good retelling, uh, but I, I do think that it does. Obviously, it's it's got the 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 problems that any Disney film has, which is that everything has to happen within like it's not even like a week. It's like a couple of days, you know, and it's like, wow, that's really rushed and weird, uh, but okay, whatever. Um, other than that, uh, I find that the, the takes to try to, <laughs> to, to somewhat, uh, I don't even know, would you justify liking it, even though, you know, it's got, quote problematic now that's a uh, a overused word problematic elements um like you know stuff that's like well does beauty duh beauty must have stockholm syndrome you're like come on bro it's one no two even if who gives a shit (laughs) yeah i mean that's not the point of the story anyway Uh, i actually would like to see someone do a beauty and the beast where beauty actually does legitimately develop something that looks like stockholm syndrome like actually looks like it because uh i've actually never read one that's like that as much as people like to claim that that's like some sort of core element to this story it's really not beauty and the beast retelling with the charles manson family you could do it Yes, um, yes, you could. And I wouldn't actually. necessarily hate it, actually. <laughs> that might be kind of good. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, to your point, execution. Uh, but yeah, if someone's listening to this, go do that. Uh, I don't I, I don't know that I have the chops for it. Free idea. Um, I don't know that I have the, have the wherewithal the, to do it, but if you can do it, by all means. Yeah, go for it. Uh, so anyway... Um, so do we want to talk about uh, The Tiger's Bride then? Do you have a, a passage that you'd like to uh, read or had you not picked one out yet? Um, I'm sorry. That sounds like I put you on the spot, right? <laughs> no, I actually I do have one I want to read, but it's at the very end. And I think that. OK, so let's talk, talk about, about it a little bit before we get to the yeah, end. Yeah, let's let's do that. All right. So. um the Tiger's Bride. And I did notice it's really interesting because um, I think you had mentioned uh, beforehand, uh, before we recorded, that uh, you weren't sure if the Beast character here, who is a literal tiger, uh, was a, a like a, a sign- signifier of like some sort of Orientalism going on, which got me thinking, uh, are you... Are you familiar with um, the, what is it, the Rakshasas? Uh, from, uh, it's like, uh, folklore, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't think that they're all tiger-like or, or humanoid tigers. That's my D&D background talking because that's the artwork that they used. But it brought that to mind. And the fact that there's like these, it's, it's a very strange 
piece in that it's not illusions per se. It's more like the people around uh, the tiger and his valets and servants sort of studiously decide to accept their their masks and whatnot. And it's very strange because it's uh, like I remember thinking to myself, well, what immediately I was like, okay, what kind of animal is that? And what is this animal? What is what's inside the mask of this one? I, and I don't know if you got that feeling immediately, but there's something in the description when she she's giving you like the descriptions of how they they act and like the 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 one servant that would come and talk to her and then sort of always be murmuring as they're walking away, you know, before they spoke or after they spoke. And I kept on thinking to myself, is that a bird? What 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 exactly are these guys? Oh, the little, the valet, I think the valet is supposed to be like a monkey or an ape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was actually the impression that I got like immediately just from like kind of the chattering and kind of the, the mannerisms that they described for the, the valet. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That was my first thought. And then I think later in the story, um, when it's kind of masked off with, with everything, she does actually describe it as being mm-hmm. like Simeon. So I guess I was right there. That was just my, my first kind of instinct by how she was describing, describing this little guy. And I do imagine him as a little guy. Like I can't mentally imagine him as like being like a full grown, like, like an adult sized person. She's just a little guy to me. <laughs> Some little type of guy. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's really something, and and in this one, um, beauty is is rather <laughs> she's rather acerbic. I kind of like her. <laughs> I really yeah, do she's like kind her. Of a bitch, and she rocks. <laughs> I mean, there's like this. Uh, what is it? Like the first line is just such a good one too. It's like my father lost me to the beast at cards. Ah, fuck! It's so good, really. <laughs> Yeah, like that's a that's a very good way to start a story. Yeah, and it's it sort of also uh, casts the father in this version of Beauty and the Beast to be like just a fucking just a douche. He's not he's not. Oh, a he's good. a loser. He's just he's yeah. a piece of shit. Yeah, it's it's what is it? Uh, hold on, I'm looking for it. Uh, oh, he's a gambling. He's got a, a a compulsive gambling problem. He's a drunk. Like he he doesn't seem to care about his daughter enough to not bet her in a card game. <laughs> right. I mean, there's this line right almost at the beginning as well, where it's, when we left Russia, we owned black earth, blue forest with bear and wild boar, serfs, cornfields, farmyards, my beloved horses, white nights of cool summer. The fireworks of the northern lights. What a burden all those possessions must have been to him, because he laughs, laughs as if with glee as he beggars himself. He's in such a passion to donate all to the beast. And I, 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 I don't even know what to say about that whole sentence. That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, that it's, whole... It, it's just such like a, a an absolutely like vicious takedown of this type of guy. <laughs> who can have everything, but like the thrill of gambling and, and 
And the excitement of that is better to him than all of his land, these nice things, these riches. And that's just, that's a, extremely a type of guy. And mm-hmm. it just skewers that right there. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's really great. And of course, the 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 funny thing being that uh, she is not well versed in Italian, or at least the Italian that they're uh, speaking in this particular region. Uh, which also um, wanted to point out that uh, just as uh, the courtship of Mister Lion never leaves sort of the the heart of civilization, as uh, Carter would think of it, uh, this happens out in the fringes. Like beauty is Russian. Uh, and they go to the land of horrors, as H.P. Lovecraft would call it, Italy, um, <laughs> to play cards I think there's against sort of the like beast. A, a, a very great gothicism to that, because so many of your classic gothic novels um, are set, you, you know, they're, they're written by English writers, your Anne Radcliffe's, your Matthew Lewis's. And they're set in these like wild, like exotic Catholic countries like Spain or like Italy. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here, too. I can't imagine this story being set in, you know, even the Moors in England. I can't imagine it being set set on a, you know, a windswept moor. It's like some Wuthering Heights stuff. Like Italy just seems kind of right for how how much more gothic this story is. Yeah, I mean, I think it, th- that there's some lines in there about how uh, the 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 warmer climes sort of agitate. It doesn't say it in so many words, but it's sort of like this idea of you know the warmer climes as you go south, it agitates the blood and it causes all these weird things to pop up all of a sudden. Uh, so you know, it's it's not quite as uh, as you would think, as you would say, like it's not. It's not quite as uh, civilized or what have you as even like a Scottish moor or anything like that because that's cold and pure and yada, 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 so on and so forth. The familiar. And I do think it's weird because you, you mentioned like the orient- Orientalism, but here it's it's sort of even a bit more removed because she – like beauty isn't English, so it's not like a – it's not like she's uh, considered like a th- like being threatened, a damsel, a, a pure, uh, an English damsel, pure of heart, you know, being threatened by you know some swarthy Italian. She is herself of you know Russian descent, so she's not English as well. Yeah, I think and, it, no, one ahead. of the things that I do like about this story and and her character in particular. Um, as compared to Courtship of Mr. Lion, which is a nice story. Like, like, don't get me wrong. I feel like I come off like I'm ragging on that story, but I'm not. I like it. It's a good story. But it has that kind of fairy tale remove where the narrator isn't a character. It's just the narrator. Mm-hmm. Whereas The Tiger's Bride is told from the point of view of the beauty character. So you get a lot more of her personality. Um, and like I said before, she's, she's acerbic is a good word for it. She's... It's explicitly mentioned that she's a virgin, but she doesn't have that sort of like twee virginal, like pure nice brain that you expect in uh, kind of like you would expect out of like a traditional gothic heroine or something. She's very cynical in a lot of places and um, 
and angry and um, like a very keen observer of other people and not not necessarily always in a way where she sees their nice sides. She's very quick to be like, this is a flaw, this is a flaw, this is a flaw. And I think that that's interesting since it's almost completely against type from what you would see. Like, it almost makes me wonder what Courtship of Mr. Lion would look like if Beauty was the narrator instead of just, you know, a non-character narrator. Uh, well, what yeah. it would look like, what the contrast between the two would be. That that was the other thing I, I'd forgotten to mention, that uh, Mr. Lion is uh, sort of a, a third-person, omniscient uh, point of view, and this is very much first-person, uh, which definitely, uh, to your point, I think it just brings, uh, drives home the immediacy and sort of like the the rawness of, of everything that uh, that she's seeing. Uh, I would I'd probably say that given that, you know, Beauty probably in this story, in The Tiger's Bride, has probably been taking care of her father rather than the other way around. Uh, that probably doesn't, you know, sort of uh, give you an innocence or a naivety. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe at first, but this isn't that time. This is way far, way late in the game not to be punished. Right. And you know, there's, a, uh, there's a part, too, where it talks about um, where it, it kind of gets you the, uh, so she talks about how she knew about, and in, in the quotes, um, uh, where giggling nursemaids initiated me into the mysteries of what the bull did to the cows. So she like, she's not totally ignorant. Like she knows what sex is. Um, and then the uh, the other part where so the, the the one thing that the beast asks and he'll like let her go is he wants to see her naked and what she says is she's like well well you can do it but you know I'll cover my face and you know you can see me from the waist down in the dark and then you can pay me like if you want to you know so she's kind of like saying this like all to shame him but like that's saucy she's very spicy about it <laughs> Well, yeah, she she doesn't immediately cave to whatever the the initial offer is. She's like, no, that's that, I'm not interested in that. Nope. Yeah, you know, we're going to do it the, this way and this way and this way, and I'm going to cover my face. Uh, and and she has like very specific instructions, like you you can cover my face, but not too closely, uh, obviously, so that she can breathe and whatnot, and or that you can't even get the outline of her face as well. Um, and so on. And she's not at all interested in whatever the initial offer is. She's like, no, fuck that. This is how you're going to do it or you don't. Or I, I, I yeah, just and I think you out. A lot of it to the way she describes it, it's like she says, I must stress that you should give me only the same amount of money that you would give to any other woman in such circumstances. Mm, yes, um, yes. I liked that because she's basically like, well, you know, if you're going to do this, if you're going to treat me like a prostitute, treat me like a prostitute. And it's kind of like throwing his kind of like nastiness and his his kind of baseness, just throwing it in his face like that. And it seems to work because it says that, you know, after she she kind of throws this at him, he, he cries one single tear. And mm -hmm. it's it's great. It's so good. <laughs> that whole exchange. Yeah, I mean, it's it. I, I actually have it right here. 
And she's like, after she she tells him like her her demands, she's like, how pleased I was to see I struck the beast to the heart. For after a baker's dozen heartbeats, one single tear swelled, glittering at the corner of the masked eye. A tear, a tear, I hoped, of shame. It's so good. She's yeah, she rocks. She's a badass. But the thing I like her, she's not a badass in the like, I don't know, like late 90s to early 2000s female fantasy heroine way where her badassedness is just like, yeah, I can swing a sword real good. It's she just knows what she like. She knows how to kind of like mess with people and, and show them kind of their like throw that mirror back at them like, oh, here, here's your worst self. You want to you want to go. And I just I love that. It's more of a like a social daring and uh, like kind of an iron will than it is, you know, any sort of martial strength, which is just so much more interesting to me almost all of the time. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, um, oh, shit, I'm going to forget the name of the character in True Grit. Uh, where she's just like the little girl comes in and she's like, yeah, you're going to give me this and this and this. And the guy tries to like sweet talk her. And she's like, I already told you, I will not pay any more than what I have told you there and blah, blah. And it's like, oh, that's cool, man. Cause yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's really easy to, it's, it's like a really easy thing to do to just like, you know, uh, oh yeah, I can kick, I, I can round ca- roundhouse the, the enemy. Okay, that's cool and everything. It looks kind of cool when you see it on screen, but honestly, like someone who has like you know like grit, uh, you know, really sort of is able to command the presence because they're not actually roundhouse kicking someone. They're like basically you know dominating someone else through just exerting their will, and it's it's really something. It's much more interesting and a much more subtle performance. Um, and that's on screen, but here it, 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 we do get the interiority, which is great as well, because you do get, you know, not just glimpses, you get a full idea of just, you know, how, how strong she actually is, uh, even in this weird situation. Yeah, for sure. And I I think that's really like the main the main draw of this story to me, other than the aesthetic qualities of it, which, as I've said before, I love how Angela Carter writes. It is the character and she's it's it's not a very long story, but she's just so like well crafted and like like, you know, exactly the type of person that she is. And, you know, like what, maybe 15 pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's almost 20, I believe, but I might be wrong. Yeah, but, no, that but, sounds yeah. right. I, I don't count pages, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a fantastic story. And I think you're absolutely like after hearing you like in the, at the beginning here uh, talk about how you, you know, the courtship of Mr. Lion is sort of second fiddle to the Tiger's Bride. I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm very much in agreement with that, because after reading that one, like it really, really like it drives it home in a way that's really it's like you said, hot and somewhat disturbing. And I, I don't know exactly 
which which of the two uh, emotions or, or feelings uh, wins out. Yeah, I think to the reason I like to to put it with courtship of Mister Lion is because you have this setup in courtship of Mister Lion. This is very much how it is supposed to be, how we perceive it. It's very in line with both the, uh, the basic plot beats as well as kind of the, the thematics and the morals of the actual original Beauty and the Beast story. You see Beauty, she's this very good girl, and she's kind of a civilizing element for the Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of almost like a Victorian angel in the house kind of character. That whole idea where, like, it is women are the, the people that keep you know, they're like the little angel on men's shoulders. We're the ones that keep you guys from getting too rowdy or, or doing anything too bad. And that's very much courtship of Mr. Lion. It's almost like Angela Carter saying, it's like, here's how you think it is with courtship of Mr. Lion. And but here's how it really is mm-hmm. with the Tiger's Bride. Yeah. I mean, and it's it the the nakedness as a theme that runs throughout this is really interesting to me because, um, because she waits him out, and that's sort of like they they go on like that ride into the countryside, and uh, and uh, eventually the valet, uh, she rides up is it to a to one of the uh, rivers that crosses the the ter- the the territory the the property or you know his lands and uh the valet warns her that you know that if you will not let him see you without your clothes uh you must then prepare yourself to for the sight of my master naked and so then it's it's a weird he's then uh, in answer to the shame uh is then willing to bear himself uh to her in a weird inversion of the original offer. I, I don't know exactly. I, like I, 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 I've reread that part a couple of times this afternoon. And I, I don't know exactly how you get there, but it has like this poetic logic to it. It's not a, a logic logic to it though. So I no, don't know. it's it's really not, but it's also got some of the best lines, like the best descriptions of anything I have ever like read. Just the description of the tiger, um, the phrase. Every time I really like this one, she talks about the annihilating vehemence of his eyes, like twin suns. Like that's mm. just so freaking good. Like you, you get that. Um, yeah, yeah. That's probably like one of the best descriptions of like an animal, like a great cat's eyes that I've ever read. Um, and then after she's seen him, she's like, okay, she basically just flashes him. Like, yes, she shows him her boobs. She doesn't really like totally undress in this story. And then since he's done that, he says, okay, well, you know, you can leave. And this is something that I think is really interesting. So, kind of circling back to the like enchanted or magical servants that you usually have in a, in a beauty and the beast story. Um, she has been given this kind of automaton, a lady's maid that looks like her. And she remarks that, um, she says after the, the 
the tiger says, well, you can go now. Um, She says... Uh, that the valet asked politely when he should rep- prepare the carriage as if he did not doubt that I would leave um, at the first opportunity while my maid, whose face was no longer the spit of my own, continued bonnily to beam. I will dress her in my own clothes, wind her up, send her back to perform the part of my father's daughter. I thought this was so interesting because she has this kind of clarity to realize that that's how people have been seeing her her whole life mm-hmm. as being this automaton that people aren't really seeing her as a person, but they're seeing kind of a, a simulacra of her that exists in their own minds that the automaton represents better than she does being a person with an interior life and with desires. And I think that's just so, and the fact that she thinks, oh, I'll send this back to my father. is just like the most cutting, like that, that little bit, it's like not even as much about the, the the tiger and the beast part of it, but that little bit is, I think, the part that almost, it's almost the part that hits the hardest. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's it, just realizing it, that, oh yeah, no people, it, people don't really see you. They see this image of you that they've made up in their heads, and it doesn't really have anything to do with your interior life. Well, I, I'm trying to find the 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 passage where she's talking specifically about what, what we're discussing, but it's specifically that the automaton, the beasts that live in the castle, the beast himself and herself, all are considered to have no souls. Um, and so she sort of realizes, like you said, she could oh, probably yeah. send, the, send the automaton in her place and her father would not know any different uh and oh, she realizes I, I found that part yes yeah, she's talking about when they're um they're out riding is her the beast the valet and their horses um if it's if i could not if i could see not one single soul in the wilderness of desolation all around of me then the six of us mounts and riders both could boast among us not one soul either, since all the best religions in the world state categorically that not beasts nor women were equipped with the flimsy, insubstantial things when the good Lord opened the gates of Enid and let Eve and her familiars tumble out. Or tumble out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Because right there you, you get that turn, um, which hasn't really been sort of... Uh, like the, the whole idea of like um, being naked as if in Eden, which then gets repeated a couple more times before the end and then sort of really comes to a uh, fascinating, like a really great conclusion because it all sort of, it, it's on the same tonal level. It's like hitting the same notes for me, at least. Like the idea that, you know, that in fact, she is by staying with the beast really sort of going back to the beginning, like sort of to, to a primal state where she, uh, you know, it, if they're going to treat her as a soulless creature, then let her, she, she might as well stay here because this in fact is home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And yeah. that conclusion no, is probably now a good, good time to talk about that. Um, so at the end, 
she decides that she's going to stay and um, she meets him in his room and he is just not not wearing his human clothes anymore, not wearing his mask. It's just a tiger in um, in his room. And at the end of it, she, um, hold on. I'm sorry, I'm spacing mm -hmm. out. All good. Well, one thing that is interesting is as she's approaching him, he says he was far more frightened of me than I was of him. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, it's but, also um, what it, it's also what you say about animals, right? Oh, don't! It is. <laughs> it's so it's funny. It's more afraid of you than it is than um, than you. But it's also it, yeah. in the context of the story. It's kind of like sh her realizing that oh, I actually do have power. Like not in the context of this story, the kind of animal nature of the beast is definitely linked to like sexuality and her realizing he's more frightened of me than I am of him is kind of realizing I actually have power here. It's not just him. I'm not just something that the tiger can act upon. Um, but the end of it, uh, the very last couple paragraphs are just so good. It starts with the sweet thunder of his purr shook the old walls, made the shutters batter the windows until they burst apart and let in the white light of the snowy moon. Tiles came crashing down from the roof. I heard them fall into the courtyard far below. The reverberations of his purring rocked the foundations of the house. The walls began to dance. I thought it will all fall. Everything will disintegrate. He dragged himself closer and closer to me until I felt the harsh velvet of his head against my hand, then a tongue embrace of his sandpaper. He will lick the skin off me. And each stroke of his tongue ripped off skin after successive skin, all the skins of a life in the world, and left behind a nascent patina of shining hairs. My earrings turned back to water and trickled down my shoulders. I shrugged the drops off my beautiful fur. So... The ending to this story is like the best ending to any story as far as I'm concerned. Um, it just. I, the, the first time I read that, I just had to like sit for a moment because it just struck me so like intensely because it's so beautiful, but it's also very terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of has like a. I think this part is where the, the kind of horror adjacent sensibility that Carter has really kind of shows up because I have a hard time placing her as a horror author, though some people say she is. I don't really see it except in maybe a handful of stories, but mm -hmm. this really, it has that kind of terror feeling, but it's also like it's really, really hot. But the thing that's so great about it is underneath all of this, in every other Beauty and the Beast, you usually have, well, not every other, but a lot of them, you usually have the woman, she's a civilizing, has a civilizing effect on the beast and he becomes a human again. In this case, she, not just does she become a beast like the tiger, the implication is that that's who she always was. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's really powerful. And it kind of, 
In a lot of feminist writing, not just horror or feminist retellings of fairy tales, but um, the the idea of monstrousness being a liberation for women, especially sexually, is a really, really common thread in a lot of stories kind of like this. And I think this one really does it like head and shoulders better than most other ones I've ever seen. Um, just this kind yeah. of acknowledgement. And it's like, yeah, no, this is kind of who I always have been. Yeah, it's it's the it's I think the horror elements are the fact that it has that sort of like friction between um you know she does get what she wants but there's the like she bears herself to him uh and the fact is that you know the bearing of herself is actually that she is transformed. She was never like she was never a human to begin with. She was always a beast. And I, I feel like that's actually a reversal or a, or a subversion of the original sort of uh, shape of the story that really, to your point, yes, uh, I agree. But, it, it you know, like I, I wasn't even thinking of it in like the sort of like the, the monstrous feminism uh, idea. I was just thinking like, holy shit, this is like also a subversion of like even – you know, like, what does it mean to, you know, be naked when you were in Eden? And this is it right there. So I mean, I, I, I'm sort of blown away. I do thank you really, uh, you know, genuinely thank you for, for you know, like making me read this one because this, the Tiger's Bride is totally great. It is possibly one of the best fairy tale retellings I've ever read. And, you know, uh, and I read Mr. Lyons first, so, you know, it was nice. I liked it. And then this one came oh, out. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to have you read that that one second. For, no. for one, I don't think it – it's not going to live up for one. But for the other, since it is, you know, the, the, the writers and the editors, they don't just put short stories in a collection willy-nilly. The fact that the courtship of Mr. Lyon is first and then the Tiger's Bride follows it immediately – like that tells you what you need to know about these stories is you got to start with the one and, you know, have a, have a nice kind of lulled into a nice bit of comfort, especially because that one actually comes fresh off the heels of um, the title the story, The Bloody Chamber. Chamber, which is pretty gruesome. It has a it has an all's well that ends well ending, but it's it's pretty scary. It's probably one of the more horror horror feeling ones in this story. So you, you go right from the bloody chamber into courtship of Mr. Lion, which is a nice little, nice little lull. And you kind of get the sense of security. Maybe things are a little more okay. It's not so bad. And then you go right into the tiger's bride, which is just like a super visceral, dark, sexy story. That is kind of what Carter is known for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, they, yeah, to your point, I think they, they knew what they were doing. Uh, and, and, and I do thank you for, I, although you didn't make it explicit, it, it was sort of set up in the, in the collection that way. So I just went along with it and didn't like jump, the, jump the line and read the Tiger's mm -hmm. Bride first. Because honestly, yes, I think that the, the courtship of Mr. Lion would have suffered for it and it would have been very unfair, <laughs> to be honest with you, to read that one second and be like, Oh, for uh, sure. Because it's 
it's it's like a warm-up. It's like a little warm-up. Like, I really do think the way it works in the context of the collection is, it very much is, this is how you think it is, this is how you've been told it is, Ver- and then Tiger's Bride comes in, but actually this is how it really is. Yeah, yeah. Like, let me, let yeah. me get true and honest and raw for a second with this one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really great. And uh, before I, I gush again about this story, um, I just want to ask you, uh, Maddie, uh, I guess it's time to ask you uh, what interesting irons might you have in the fire for our listeners to go visit, listen to, or what have you? Um, well, I am a co-host on a, the Pod Hand podcast, which is a podcast all about dark fantasy, horror, and grimdark, specifically focused on uh, the late and legendary Kentaro Mura's Berserk manga, which um, actually, if you like Carter, you'll probably like Mura in some of his... There's some similarities you might not expect. Um... So I have that. I have a Gumroad store. My username there is Devil's Doorbell with an underscore at the end. Um, <laughs> and I've got a couple. I've got two stories up there. You can feel free to download them, pay me for them. Don't care either way. Um, if you are interested in that, uh, I also have my own fairy tale. Um, it's published in the April two thousand nineteen. Um, issue of Enchanted Conversation magazine, which is a magazine full of fully t- fairy tale retellings and uh, also people's original fairy tales. Mine's an original one. Um, it's called Wolfskin. I'm pretty proud of it. That That's kind of what I got going on. I've got other little things here and there, but some stuff right. just needs a home yet. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So um, I guess that is it unless there's any last thoughts uh, other than go read this folks uh we we have not spoiled either one of these stories because they are both different vibes you can't spoil a vibe uh but uh i mean but if you do any, read them and want to read them both courtship yes. first bride second yes yes i would if you I only would, want to read one of them tiger's bride yeah i would co-sign on both of those uh pieces of advice um, but yeah, uh, if that's it, uh, I do want to thank you for coming on, Maddie. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having uh, me. Obviously, we'll want to have you back at some point. Uh, I, I'm hoping you'll say yes to that. And, oh, for sure. Um, excellent. And so, um, and so then I guess that's that's it for me. Uh, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time on Potside.